Well, as you can see, we're not in 1 Corinthians, or we're not going to be dealing with 1 Corinthians directly this morning, although we are going to be dealing with 1 Corinthians indirectly. And so, by way of introduction, I want to try to uh, bridge a gap between some things that I said last Lord's Day and the connection to them here in Mark chapter 4, and then I'll explain what my goal is for this morning, and then I will attempt to meet that goal. So first let me bridge this gap. Last week in the introduction, I attempted to draw a fairly short line between what the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross and how that has an effect on the love that we should have for one another. And if we wanted to summarize it very succinctly, we could put it this way. Jesus Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's what Peter said. Now, righteousness is summed up, according to Christ, in the two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Elsewhere, we see throughout the New Testament that it is what we would call Christian love, love to God and love to our brothers and sisters, which summarizes or encompasses righteousness. Righteousness is summarized with Christian love. Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree for at least this fruit. There are others, but at least this fruit that we would be changed and transformed so that we would love God and love one another. Now the Corinthians, rather than displaying this love, the Corinthians had divided and they were quarreling with one another. As we read in uh, chapter 3, verse 3, there was jealousy and strife among them. That's the opposite of love. So their problem, we could say the Corinthian problem, was a love problem. And if you, if you, if you want to, you can flip there and you can see the, the points that I'm making there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and chapter 3. We, we also noted that when we compare what Paul says in chapter 2 verse 6 with what Paul says in chapter 3 verse 1, that he's, he's trying to address their immaturity as, as saints. He says in, at the beginning of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 6, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. But then in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. You see the, the contrast. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom, but I could not address you as mature, but as infants, except he uses the word spiritual, and we'll, we'll get there. The contrast is between mature and infants. That's what he's addressing amongst them. So the general line of thought there in 1 Corinthians 2.6 is, is Paul is saying this. Yes, we certainly do impart a wisdom. There is a wisdom of the gospel. There is a wisdom contained in the message that God has given to the apostles. The problem is it's really those who are growing spiritually or the spiritually mature who are able to receive it as such. And I'm going to keep qualifying with statements like that. To receive it as such. And he's telling the Corinthians, you're just not there yet. I want to give you more, 
but you're not ready for more. You're not mature yet. Now, how again, how do we know that they were not mature? Well, he tells them because there's jealousy and strife among you. In other words, the, the lack of love, jealousy and strife, was evidence of their immaturity. And so we could say that their love problem was actually an immaturity problem. At the root, their problem was love growing out of the soil of immaturity. That's what we, this is all last week. Now from that, we, we looked at other texts and we noticed a very simple truth. And that is this, that there are mature Christians and there are immature Christians. There are Christians who are considered babes in Christ. And there are those that John would refer to as young men and old men or fathers of the faith. Those who have just begun the Christian life are infants and children. Typically, those who have been walking with the Lord for a long time have advanced to that, that stage of, of being young men or even fathers in the faith. There are some Christians who have been Christians for a really long time. They are very mature in most areas, but there are also some areas where they need to grow. And there are some Christians who haven't been Christians very long at all, but because of some trial or some affliction... Their, their circumstance has forced them to mature in some areas already early on, but there are still many areas where they need to grow. The Christian life is not uniform. Everybody doesn't start out at exactly the same place and move at the same pace throughout their Christian walk. There are mature Christians and there are immature Christians. If that is, a, if that is a, an interesting subject for you, I'm pretty sure over here on the, the little Banner of Truth shelf, there's a book called Learning in Christ's School by Ralph Vining where he opens all this up and explains sort of the, these various stages of the Christian life. But that's just a reality that the Bible teaches. And it's not just a matter of time. It's not simply that, well, if you've been a Christian longer, you're automatically more mature. It's not just that. Although typically, those who've been walking with the Lord longer have matured in more areas than those who have not been walking with Christ as long. But according to Paul, it's the mature saints who are capable of receiving and discerning and using the wisdom of God rightly. Now, obviously, you don't have to be a mature saint to, to hear the gospel and be converted. That, that, we all start there at, at nothing and are brought from death to life. But to receive it, discern it, and use it rightly requires a level of maturity, a level of growth. Now that puts, puts us all in a place of, of a little bit of difficulty. Let me illustrate the difficulty. We've all heard of, or maybe you have been, uh, a young person fresh out of uh, college. You've received a degree in some area of work, and you go to get a job. And what do they tell you? Well, everything looks great. We just don't think you're the right person because you don't have the experience. Well, yeah, I just got out of school. Of course I don't have the experience. Can I work for you to get the experience? Well, sorry, no, you don't have the experience. Well, so how can I get the experience if I don't get the job? If this is the way it always works, then I never, I never get the experience. You see the problem? I can't get the experience because I don't have the experience. And that's sort of, it seems like an impossible cycle. And that's sort of what we see with, with Paul. It sounds like he's saying to the Corinthians, you need to grow, but you're not ready. You know why you're not ready? 
Because you're not growing. Well, how are we supposed to fix this? I need to grow, but I'm not ready to grow because I'm not growing. Well, I, I don't have the opportunity to grow if you don't give me what I need, but you won't give me what I need because I'm not growing. You see, it seems like this, this never-ending cycle that you can't get out of. And here's what I said last week. I, I called it a, a cyclical irony. There is a cyclical, you hear the word cycle, a cyclical irony in our growth in grace. We have to receive in order to grow, but we have to grow in order to receive. Well, how can I do that? How can I fix this problem? If I, You're telling me I need to grow. You tell me I need something, but you won't give it to me because I'm not growing. How do, I, how do we get out of this cycle? It sounds like an impossible trap. And, and the biblical analogy that we'll see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and, and elsewhere is a child, an infant drinking milk, versus eating solid food. If, if you go to a child in the womb, we've all been around children who have been born prematurely. That, that, that child born prematurely is not able to even eat milk from its mother. It has to be fed a different way to get it to the point where it can finally nurse from its mother, to get it to the point where it can finally eat from a spoon, to get it to the point where it can finally eat meat. It has to be receiving, and the nutrients have to be dispersed among the body. The body has to grow so that it can move on to the next step. That's the picture that the Bible gives us. Or think of a tree. And I think I used this illustration last week. A, a tree has to put out leaves in order to act sort of like, like miniature solar panels to take in the sunlight so that it can grow. But the more leaves that it puts out, the more sunlight it's able to take. So it needs to take in sunlight from its leaves in order to put out more leaves to take in sunlight. Its roots need to go out to, to the water to get nutrients to grow, but it has to have the nutrients to grow in order to put out its roots further. You see, it needs what it needs in order to need, to continue to get. There's this cycle to it. And this is true of the Christian life. It's a clear biblical truth, but when we think about that, it might put us all in a place of difficulty with no apparent solution. How do I fix it if I am immature? Let's say we're the Corinthians. The Corinthians say, okay, Paul, we're immature. So, so give us something to, to make us mature. Well, you're not ready yet. Why? Well, because you're immature. What, what, do I, what am I supposed to do? See? So as I thought about that this, this week in, in preparing, I thought that it might be helpful to just talk about that principle. Try to answer this apparent problem from the Scripture. Show you that it's reality and show you how this works. Uh, because I don't think I've ever addressed this or, or studied it in, in, uh, in any thorough type of way. So, here's the goal for today. That brings us to Mark chapter 4. And you can turn back there now if you, if you turned away. Mark chapter 4, the verse I read, is one place where this problem is answered. We, we receive the answer to this apparent problem. And so what I want to do is, is just put a little more emphasis on this principle because it is a principle that it is underlying a lot of what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians. And I personally find this extremely valuable to us as Christians. As I thought about this, I thought, if we don't know this... We feel like we're treading water our, our entire Christian life if we don't understand this. So let me state the principle from the outset. Let me give you the answer, and then we'll, I'll show it from Scriptures. Here's the principle. 
in proportion to our appropriate use of the revelation given to us, God promises to give more with interest. In proportion to our appropriate use of the revelation given to us, God promises to give more with interest. Now I'm tailoring this. I use the word revelation. I'm tailoring this specifically to the application of 1 Corinthians, which is preaching and preachers and the ministry of the word. But this principle applies to all of God's dealing with us, all of the manifold graces that He would give to us. So I could say... In proportion to our appropriate use of the grace given to us, God promises to give more grace with interest. I could say in proportion to our use of the love that God has placed in us, God promises to increase that love with interest. In proportion uh, to our appropriate use of the patience that God has worked in us, God promises to increase our patience with interest. We could go down the line, self-control, joy, all of them. In proportion to our putting it to use, God says, I'll give you more with interest. And that's how we grow. So this is what we see in the passage. But I want to I begin by considering the broader context of, of Mark 4. When we consider the broader setting of our Lord's statement here in verse 24, we get a better idea of what He means to say. So look with me uh, in your Bible to Mark 4. Verses 1 through 9, we have our Lord giving the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower, that's what we call it. The parable of the sower. This parable is also given in Matthew chapter 13 and in Luke chapter 8. Now, I just want to read what is, for our purposes, the, the relevant portion. Verses 1 through 2a. It's Mark 4, 1 and 2a. Again, he began to teach by, beside the seaside. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. I'll stop there. So Jesus, our Lord, is teaching. He's teaching a very large crowd of people. And he's teaching them in parables. Parables. That's all I want you to know. Christ teaching a crowd of people in parables. All right, then verses 10 to 20. In those verses, Christ explains the parable to His disciples. Again, the relevant portion would be verses 10 and 11. It says, And when He was alone... Those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Notice here, he's now alone. There are those who were around him with the twelve. A, a noticeably smaller number of people now. The crowd has gone away. And it says that he explained to them the parable. That is, he, he gave them the true spiritual meaning of the parable. He gave them the secret of the kingdom to this smaller group. Now, at the end of this section in verse 34, it says, Privately, 
To his own disciples, he explained everything. So that verse that we read, verse 24, comes to us in this context. Christ speaks parables to a crowd. The parables are often referred to as dark sayings from of old. Parables to a crowd. Then, when he gets into a smaller group, a private group, he explains the meaning of the parables. He does not explain the meaning to the big group. He explains the meaning to the smaller group. He, we could say, and this will be relevant to 1 Corinthians, he opens up the mystery to them. That's the context. Secondly, I want to consider the subject matter that we're dealing with here in verse 24, but we'll have to look at the verses just before it. Leading into verse 24, immediately after he's just given that private explanation of the parables that he did not explain to the crowds, he says in verse 21, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. He taught publicly in parables, secret things. When he gets privately with his disciples, he explains the secret things privately. And then he says, nothing is hidden except to be manifest. Nothing is secret except to come to light. Now, now think with me of, of what he's just asked about a lamp. Is a lamp brought in to be put in under a basket? What is a lamp? A lamp is a light. A lamp is meant for illumination. A, a lamp is meant to show things, not hide things. Light isn't meant to be hidden or private. Light is meant to be, we could say, public. Light is meant to illuminate things. Now in this context, he says, for nothing is hidden. What is hidden? Of what we have read, what could be called hidden? Well, it would be the meaning of the parables that he didn't explain to the crowd. He kept it from them to give to his disciples. In this context, what is secret? It's the meaning of the parables. The secret of the kingdom. He didn't give it to the crowds. He gave it to his disciples. And then he says, and then he asks these questions. It's almost as if we could imagine him saying, I've just given you this secret. Now, is a secret given except to be made manifest? The, the, the clear answer to these questions rhetorically, or the first one especially, is no, a lamp is meant to shine. It's meant to show forth. The Lord has just made these hidden and secret things known to His disciples. Then He said, hidden and secret things are meant to be manifested. They're meant to come to light. So what's the subject? What are we dealing with here? In general terms, it's the revelation of God to men. Generally speaking, it's the Word of God. Specifically, it's the ministry of Christ to His apostles who will one day be commissioned to take everything that He taught, him, taught them to the ends of the earth. Remember we saw last week about the ministry of the Spirit or several weeks ago, the ministry of the Spirit. I will bring to, the Spirit will bring to your memory all that I have said to you. In other words, He's saying, I've told you this secretly. It's not meant to stay a secret. I've told you this privately. 
but it's meant to go out. It's meant to go forth. It's meant to be preached. Don't hide it. Put it to use. That's what he's saying. Light is not meant to be hidden. It's meant to be put on a stand, right? What kind of stand do you put a lamp on? I think it's a lamp stand, right? A lamp stand. I think that's, I think that's relevant to the scriptures. The churches are the lamp stands of Christ, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He's saying these things are meant to go forth for the building of the churches. So generally, it's the word of God. But very specifically, it's Christ's word to the apostles that they would then use to build the foundation of the church. We call that the New Testament. In another context, he says something similar. He uses different language. In Matthew chapter 10, he says, Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. For what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Now, Matthew 10, we call the disciples' discourse. Ma- Matthew 10 is where Christ is giving his apostles their marching orders. I've taught you some things in private. Now, proclaim them publicly. The subject matter is the revelation of God to men. Specifically, it is the apostles of Christ. But I do believe that there is a principle here capable of being applied more broadly because back in Mark chapter 4, verse 10 said that it was those around him with the twelve. So it was not just the twelve. There were other disciples who were nearby who heard this principle. That's why I think it applies to us. And remember we've said before that just because we don't get revelation the way the apostles got revelation, that doesn't mean we don't have the revelation of God. We have the Word of God. They got it directly from the Spirit and penned it. We have it inscripturated in His Word. We have the Word of God. So there's a principle here with regard to the Word of God that applies to us. Now that brings us to our specific text, verse 24, and the duty that is commanded here. Verse 24, He said to them, here's our duty, pay attention to what you hear. Pay attention to what you hear. Now, if you could read this in the original, there's a little bit, I think, of a wordplay because it actually reads, see what you hear. Well, that doesn't make any sense because we hear with our ears and see with our eyeballs. The word see here is meant to be taken metaphorically, and we do this. For example, we might use the phrase, I'll see to it. What does that mean? If, if, uh, if, if you're going on vacation, you've got animals, and you call them and you say, hey, will you come... Uh, Look after my animals while I'm out of town. Look after. What do we mean by that? that? That's our way of saying, I'll come to your house and do everything that is necessary so that they live. But we have that terminology. Yeah, I'll look after him. I'll look after him. I'll see to it. See? We don't mean using our actual eyes to see things necessarily. We mean, I'll take care of what needs to be done. Right? That's, that's the picture here. When he says, pay attention, this command to pay attention to what you hear is a command to diligent, dutiful hearing of the Word of God. Pay attention to what you hear. See to what you hear. Look after what you hear. D- dutiful, diligent hearing. Here's the question. What does, it, what does that mean? What is... Diligent, dutiful hearing of the Word of God. Does it, does it mean that we just allow the, the details of what's being said to come into our auditory senses like we would listen to a symphony? 
an orchestra, we say, oh, I, I hear the percussion. Oh, I hear the strings. Oh, I hear the woodwinds there. Oh, I love how it all came together there at the end. Is that what he means when he says pay attention to what you hear? Or, or does he mean pay attention to, to the, the subject and the predicate? See if you can figure out where the verbs and the nouns are. Where, where's the adverb? Where's the adjective? Can you figure all that out? Do you think that's what he means when he says pay attention to what you hear? Surely you understand that's not what he means. He goes on to give a hint about exactly what he means here, but I want to use some other passages first, and then we'll come back here. So turn to James chapter 1 with me. We, we read this several weeks ago, but I want you to see it. James chapter 1. The question is, what is a diligent, dutiful hearing of the Word of God? That's the question. James chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now notice in this brief section about hearing or receiving the word, James, he doesn't just say, listen for the verbs and nouns. Let's see, let Make sure the words go into your ear holes and, and you comprehend. No, he says, put away sin. Put away your sin. Let go of your sin. Receive the word with meekness. Don't, don't lord over it. Don't, don't come as if you are over it making a determination. But come underneath it, low, in order to be instructed. He says, be doers. Hear the word and persevere in doing. That's James' description of a diligent, dutiful hearing of the Word of God. It necessitates action. Put away your sin, sit under the Word, do what it says. Act upon it, in other words. Dutiful hearing never means merely receiving audio or deciphering nouns and verbs through accelerated phonics. We'll see how this might apply to reading as well. It never means just observing, just hearing. It always means action. Always. I'll show you again. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 verses 24 and 25. I won't read the fullness of this, this story. You, you know, I think, most of it. But he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now if we were to go on to read, we would find out that both the wise man and the foolish man heard the words. Right? Hearing the word is not the rock. 
The wise man is the one who hears the words and does them. He does. He acts. In other words, hear the words and act upon what you hear. The difference between the wise and the foolish is not hearing. The difference is doing. It is doing that lays the foundation which prepares the house for the storms to come. Not hearing. Doing. 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 Again, we see the appropriate way to hear or receive the word always implies putting into action what you've been given. Now we go back to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, we read, Pay attention to what you hear. That is a, a command to a diligent and dutiful reception of the Word of God. And we understand that that never means, ever means simply allowing the Word to go into the ears or the eyes if you're reading. Now, we've, we've talked about this and others have asked about you know, putting your headphones in and listening to the, the Bible on audio app as you work or as you sleep. I'm all for it. Please do it, do it, do it, do it. Fill your minds and ears with the Word of God. That's, that's something separate. What we're talking about here is especially as the Word of God is ministered to us as a means of grace. As we are going to it specifically in, in, uh, in search of growth. Particularly, not just drowning out sounds or, or the like. Pay attention to what you hear never means just reading the words on the page. It never means, well, I, I heard the sermon go into my ears. It never means that. It always means that there's going to be some action following what you hear. We come putting away our sin. We come in meekness, not lording over the Word. We come like little kids to receive. And we come expecting that we are going home with something to do. Maybe it's an internal or spiritual work. Maybe the action is just worship. Maybe the action is just meditation. Maybe the action is just adoration of God. Maybe that's all God wants you to do is say, Whoa, what a God! That might be it. Or it might be some external physical action. The, the, the application might be that you need to go to the Lord in prayer about some things. You might need to go to a brother or sister. You might need to go to them to encourage them. You might need to go to them to rebuke them. You might need to go to a lost person or people to evangelize. The, 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 the applications could be as numerous as people and sermons and, and words in the Bible. It could be massive and infinite. The point is, the Word of God never leaves us with nothing to do. Never. If you leave having done nothing, you have stiff-armed. At, at the very best, you've closed off your ears to God's Word. At the very, at the very least. At, at worst, you've formally rejected it and you've said, I will not hear and I will not obey. But the Word of God never leaves us with nothing Remember that the Word of God is living and active. It always demands a response. To pay attention to what you hear is like opening up your Bible, and as you open up your Bible, you're, you're putting your feet in the starting blocks of a race. Ready that as you hear, 
the, the firing shot. You're running to action. You're, you're leaning forward, forward in your soul with, with a little bit of, of maybe even trembling anxiety ready to pounce upon the action. God, what do you want me to do? That's a dutiful, diligent hearing. The runners in a race, they don't get in the starting blocks and put their hands down and lean forward and then hear the gunshot and say, now that was loud. What kind of gun was that? Was that a real cartridge or was that a... Was that a blank? That was a very... Did you hear that sound? That was interesting, wasn't it? I heard it. Did you hear it? They've already lost the race. The hearing of the sound only means bolting to action. That's the picture here. We, when we come to the Word of God, we're in a race. We're not in the stands. When you listen to preaching, you're in a race. You're not observing. You're not watching. You are a part of it. The men of prior generations would say that we must, this is the language they would use, improve upon the word. Improve what you've heard. And to improve means to use it and make a profit. To make it advantageous. To increase. And so we must do this with every interaction with the word of God. Whether it's reading or preaching or hearing, whatever it might be. It's our job to improve upon it. To turn a profit. Get the profit out of it. Whether in private, whether you're reading books, whether you're reading sermons, whether you're listening to sermons, whether it's a personal interaction with another person who says, hey, I read this the other day. I thought this might be encouraging. As soon as you know the Word of God is about to come out, your feet are in the starting blocks. What am I to do? But especially in the ministry of the Word, through preaching in the local church, we are commanded to pay attention to what we hear. We are commanded to a dutiful and diligent hearing of the Word, and that assumes that we're looking for the action. God, what do I do? And this only happens, as James said, when we put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. We put away our sin. We come not as judges, but we come to receive the Word with meekness. We come and we listen and we say, Father, I know that you want me to act upon what I hear today. Just give me the Word and I'll act. Tell me how to think, Father. Tell me how to act. Show me where I'm wrong. Teach me the right way. Give my soul something to do. That's how we come to the Word. Even if it just means that you say, my child, sit and gaze and stand in awe of who I am. That might be the action in many sermons. The application is just worship. But if we come expecting, I'm just going to listen and go about my merry way, we've disobeyed God. This is to truly pay attention. It's to see to the Word or look after the Word. Give careful attention to whatever action might need to be taken. Now, I believe that that interpretation and that understanding of what he's just said is proven by what he follows with. Notice next the encouragement to this duty. The encouragement to this duty at the end of verses, verse 24 going through verse 25. This is the motivating principle. Somebody might ask, why should I pay attention? Why? Well, the answer is, because in proportion to our appropriate use of the revelation given to us, God promises to give more with interest. When we use and hear the word properly, God gives more. Notice what he says, verse 24. 
With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now think with me here. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He's talking to his disciples. He's just referenced not hiding but displaying what they've been given. The the subject matter is the Word of God, the proclamation of the Word of God. He says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Or we could say, with the measurement that you use, it will be measured back to you. And we could think here of a measuring cup. It's almost as if Christ says, well, with the size measuring cup that you use, that's the size that you're going to get back. Now, what is it here, the ESV says, with the measure you use? The word is, is, uh, is duplicate, duplicated, so it would, it would read, with the measure that you measure out. With the measure you measure. What does it mean to measure out, to use it? Well, for the apostles, strictly speaking, to measure out refers to their preaching. They, they've received something, they've got to dish it back out. They've got to use it with a measure. And he's saying, with the measure that you use, it's going to be given back to you. The size cup that they use will be the size cup that they're served with. As they deliver it, it will be delivered to them. According to the measure you use to give others their portion, it will be given back to you. Or, in direct proportion to your use of what you receive, you will receive in return. That's what he's saying. Applying it more broadly to the diligent and dutiful use of the word by every Christian, like we just mentioned, the principle is applied to more than just preaching. It it could refer to any of those ways in which we hear and put to use or turn a profit with the word of God, especially in our service to others. Matthew Henry says, Gifts and graces multiply by being exercised. And God has promised to bless the hand of the diligent. The point is that as we put the word of God to use, we receive more. As we hear and do the word, we are given more to hear and do. Or again, in proportion to our appropriate use of the revelation given to us, God promises to give more with interest. Notice he says, with the measure you use... It will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. You hear the word and you apply it using a one-third measuring cup. One-third cup. That's the way you apply it. Well, God says, I'll give you back one-third and I'll raise you a tablespoon. What do you have now? You've got more than you had before. You've been increased. He makes returns with interest. You've increased in grace. You've grown. Guess what? You've matured you've received a little bit more than you had before. And again, it's not to hoard it up for yourself, but it is to serve others in love. Similar language is used elsewhere where we read, this is Luke chapter 6, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now see, the, the varying context showed that the principle is to be applied broadly. 
It's not just to the apostles, it's all of the saints. It's not just to the Word, but to all of the gifts and graces of God. And it's not just for ourselves, it's so that we might serve the body of Christ. And you heard that language. It's going to be returned. How much? Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, dumped into your lap. Well, how do I get that? Use what you've already been given and you will get more. That's the principle. Here's the point, and this applies to all Christians. As Christians, we are able... Lost people are not able to do this. But as Christians, we are able to receive revelation from God in His Word. He's already opened our eyes to it. We can get it. We have the Holy Spirit. We can get it. But that doesn't mean that we automatically will always hear it and grow as we should. Hear it and put it to use as we should. As I said last week, we can hear the Word and make no profit. We can hear the Word and oftentimes even sometimes twist it to our destruction if we're not careful. Not eternal destruction, but you know what I mean. This is why we must do the hard work of listening to the Word and pressing on to improve it, to bring forth some profit. Listen in order to do. Now the flip side of that is those who hear, they hear the Word, Maybe they're reading it. Maybe they're listening to sermons. Maybe they sit in church all the time. But they make no appropriate use of it. They just observe and go about their way. Now, if that is somebody's comprehensive reception of the Word, that's all they ever do. They hear it all the time. But they don't make any use of it. That's a lost person. That person needs to be saved. But even Christians are capable of interacting with the Word of God and making little or no effort to improve upon it on occasion. And I believe this is especially true often of those of us of a more Calvinistic persuasion because we treat everything like it's regeneration. Everything is just God is sovereign. Everything is just God's going to act and I'm going to do nothing. And it's just going to... Poof, it's just going to work like that. And so we, we maybe open up our Bibles in the morning and we read. Maybe we sit through a sermon and we, we sort of wait for it. Waiting for God to do something. Oh, well, I didn't feel anything. Guess God's not going to do anything today. Well, you know, God is sovereign. We'll just go about our day. That's not what the Bible teaches. We have a command. You pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, you have to use it. Who has to pay attention? You have to pay attention. You have to do that. Now, we would say, of course, only the Spirit of God can strengthen us to that work. But that doesn't mean that we write everything off as if I just sit here quietly and wait for God to, to zap me with some improving of His Word. In proportion to our appropriate use of the revelation given to us, God promises to give more with interest. As you use the Word of God, you're made ready and capable to receive more. More meaning spiritual teaching or grace from the Word of God. As you grow, you're able to receive more nourishment so that you might grow even more. And you must grow in order to receive the nourishment needed for growth. You see, God has given us the answer to our conundrum. He's given it to us. The answer is action. 
the diligent improvement of what we've already been given. Let me read to you some quotes. I'll give you three, not because they're authoritative, but just to show you that I'm not crazy. Albert Barnes says, You shall be treated according to the use you make of your opportunities of learning. If you consider it well and make a good improvement of what you hear, you shall be well rewarded. If not, your reward will be small. Matthew Poole, Unto you that hear, so as you attend, understand, believe, hearken, and obey, God will give further knowledge of divine mysteries. John Gill, Unto them that hear, so as to understand, keep, and make good use of what they hear, more shall be communicated to them. Or, in proportion to our appropriate use of the revelation given to us, God promises to give more with interest. You see, God doesn't say, well, since you have no experience, I give you no opportunity. Go get some experience and then come back and we'll talk. No, He doesn't say that. God says, I'll give you a little. And we'll see what you do with that. If you improve upon it, I'll give you more. If you improve upon that, I'll give you even more. But if I give you little and you waste it or you snub your nose at it or you treat the application of it as if it were beneath you or you would rather cling on to some sin than heed the word of God, then your growth will be stunted and you will not mature. God, would, God says, in effect, you're not digesting milk yet. Why would I give you steak? He's a good father. He's not ignorant. He knows what we need. And it's clear from the Corinthian problem that they had not improved upon what they had heard. They had heard the gospel. It had taken root. There was conversion. They were saints. They were Christians. But more needed to be done. We've already seen they were enriched in speech and knowledge. But their enrichment in speech and knowledge had not led to love and service. It led to haughtiness and pride. And very often we're, the, we're in the same boat. We read every morning. We do family worship. We listen to sermons. We come to church. We listen to preaching. And very often we walk away and say, well, it's, it's dull. It's vapid. It's lifeless. I'm not growing. I'm not getting anything out of this. Well, the question might be, have you made any attempt to improve upon what you're hearing? Or when the sermon's over, do you immediately go back to your life? And you, com- you just forget the whole thing. Are you using the avenues of the Word of God in a diligent and dutiful frame of mind, ready to leap into action at the first revelation of some clear pathway? You see, it's that attitude that receives the grace of God to put into action what you're receiving. And it's that grace received which gives growth, and it's that growth in grace which gives greater avenues of receptivity. But you have to make use of what you receive. And this is how the immature can grow to maturity. By making a diligent and dutiful use of the Word of God. Now let me give you very briefly six points of application. Number one, be much with God in His Word. Be much with God and His Word. We read from Albert Barnes, You shall be treated according to the use you make of your opportunities of learning. So then what do you do? Take every opportunity given. 
Maybe even make more opportunities. If you're in the habit of trading opportunities to be with God in His Word for your pillow or for screen time, then don't be surprised when you feel like a spiritual infant. You say, well, I'm just not growing. Well, there, there might be a reason why. You can't make an appropriate use of God's Word if you're not in God's Word. Be much with God in His Word. Number two, use what you hear or receive. I just want to drive this point home. Use it. You have to enter into your times in the Word of God, whatever outlet that might be, whether it's reading or whether it's preaching, enter into that expecting to put it to use in some way. Look for the area of action. Don't look at the clock. Don't look at the reading plan. Those are fine. But perhaps you've set aside an hour to read God's Word and God gives you something in the first three minutes. Don't say, well, well I, I've got to get on from that because you know, I've got this whole hour to fill and I've got to read so much to get through, to my, through my reading plan for the year. I've got to get on with it. No, take what God gives and use it. When He gives it, you latch on and you use it. Be ready for that. Prepared for that. I illustrate the point by comparing the old self or the old uh, service gas stations compared with modern uh, self-serve gas stations. There used to be an attendant. You just sat in your car. Some places still like this. If I drove to a gas station here and I pulled up to the pump thinking it was one of those old uh, gas stations, I sat there for 10 minutes, I drive away, it's not going to be long. I'm going to be on the side of the road. And it's not because there's something wrong with the gas station. And it's not because there's something wrong with my car. It's because I didn't go into it with the right expectations. I didn't realize, oh, i got to get out and do something. i got to put this to use. It's the same thing with God's Word. You have to pay attention, seek out the application, think through it, and improve upon it. Use what you hear. Number three, don't be picky or haughty. Don't be picky. James said that we're to receive the Word with meekness. Meekness. Now you might think yourself very wise. You might think yourself very theologically astute. You may feel you're well-versed in the Scriptures. I, I've, I, I'm ready for, for high things, for great things, for deep things. You might be right about that, but you might also be very wrong about all of that. Receive the Word with meekness. Take what you can get from the Word. If necessary, take what you might consider to be bottom-shelf theology. You might read the Word and the only thing God gives you is I will never leave you or forsake you. Don't say, oh, well, I know that. Everybody knows that. What's something deep? No, just take that. God will never leave me or forsake me? Meditate upon it. Pray through it. Thank Him. Praise Him. Worship Him. You might think, oh, that's bottom shelf theology. That's, that's the early questions in the catechism. We need to move on to you know, deep things. Don't be haughty. Take what you can get. If you're sitting around waiting only for meat because you think you're ready, but God knows you actually need milk, you're going to miss out on what God has to give. He might be attempting to give you a little more milk, and like we've all seen our children do, our lips are clamped shut doing this, we don't want to take, they don't want to take what we're trying to give them. That's what we look like to God. Don't be picky. 
Number four, treasure every talent. Treasure every talent. I'll take this language from Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Sometimes God gives five. Sometimes God gives three. Sometimes God gives one. Treasure whatever you get, every little bit. Treasure it. Your job is not to question God's generosity. Your job is to improve upon what He gives. Remember, He gives you one talent. That's a talent from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God gave you a talent. Whatever He gives is a heavenly bestowal. Even if it's just a a small nugget, a, a small nugget of heavenly gold is worth more than all of the gold of earth. Treasure it if He gives you something. Treasure it. Number five, settle in for the long haul. Settle in for the long haul. Too often we want quick results. We want to think like Calvin and talk like the Puritans today. I want to know it today. It doesn't work like that. We want to understand all the mysteries today. I don't want to read a book. Give me an article. Give me a blog is there a tweet I can read that will explain this to me? That's the way our, our, we, our culture thinks. Sanctification doesn't work that way. It takes a long time. Improve what you get today. Maybe more will be given tomorrow. It takes time. But be happy in little steps. Rejoice in early graces. Don't grow stagnant. Don't settle. But also don't, don't, for, don't, don't despise the day of small things. Take little things. And settle in for the long haul. The joy is walking hand in hand with God for the long haul. Not running ahead of Him in pride. It's the long haul walking with the Lord. So settle in. And number six, look to use what God gives in service to His church. Look to use what God gives in service to His church. That was the context of Christ's statements in Mark 4 service of the apostles to the church. That's the context of Paul's dealings with the saints in Corinth, church life. We interact with Christ on earth in great measure through His mystical body that we call the church. That's how we interact with Christ. How do I know that? Because when the apostle Paul was persecuting Christians... Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? That's how he sees his bride. That's how he sees his people. The way that we interact with Christ on the earth is very often, if not predominantly, through our interactions with his people. Christ gives grace to us through one another. And he gives grace to others through us. We fellowship with Christ when we fellowship with his body. So be prepared to take what you get to serve His body, that's how you're going to grow the most. The most mature saints are the ones who have learned to pour themselves out for the church, to lay themselves out in service. Those are the mature saints. As one man said, if it's better to give than to receive, how can anybody expect to be happy who's never giving? If all you're doing is taking and not giving... You're not going to be happy. It's better to give than to receive. It will always be those who give the most, serve the most, love the deepest, and pour themselves out in the greatest measure who will be the most mature saints 
in the land. And that's because Christian love and Christian maturity go hand in hand. If you want to grow, you have to love. And as you love, you will grow. It wasn't until Christ's love for us was manifested in His death that He was afterward exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. He poured Himself out in love and was thus exalted. And He said, whoever would be greatest must be least of all and servant of all. How do I get to the top? Go down to the bottom and serve. Use what you have in service for the church. This is the way of Christ's kingdom. So let's pray that God would give us some small measure of understanding and strength to apply these things.